Hello, and welcome to Checks and Balances, Threats to This American Election. This weekly podcast is sponsored by Checks and Balances, a group of conservative and libertarian lawyers dedicated to bolstering the rule of law and opposing the degradation of American legal norms. My name is Paul Rosenzweig, and I'm your host. Joining me today as my guests on the podcast are Nina Jankowitz and Cindy Otis. Our topic today is the phenomenon of misinformation and disinformation. At Checks and Balances, we believe in the rule of law, the power of truth, the independence of the criminal justice system, the imperative of individual rights, and the necessity of civil discourse. We believe that these principles apply regardless of the party or the person in power. America is assuredly a government of laws, not of men. Our goal in creating checks and balances was to remind the nation that free speech, a free press, separation of powers, and limited government are the bedrock of the American experiment. We hope this podcast will advance the rule of law and defend the coming election. We want to make sure that as many Americans as possible understand what the law allows and what the law requires. We believe that as many Americans as possible who are legally entitled to vote should have the opportunity to do so. And most importantly of all, our goal in creating this podcast is to counter the false narrative that is being advanced by some in the public space. This is the false narrative that the American election is going to be a fraud. It's the false narrative that says that the only legitimate result is the one where a particular candidate wins. Fostering free and fair elections is not a partisan issue, not a right-left issue, not a conservative or libertarian or liberal or progressive issue. It's an American issue. And so this podcast, we aspire to offer accurate information, the ground truth about our election process and about what the law entails and how to make sure every legal vote is counted. My guests today are Nina Jankowitz and Cindy Otis. Nina is a fellow at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., where she studies the intersection of democracy and technology in Central and Eastern Europe. She's the author of How to Lose the Information War, Russia, Fake News, and the Future of Conflict. Cindy is a former CIA officer and an expert on disinformation threat analysis and counter-messaging. She's also a senior non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab and an associate at Argonne National Lab. While at the CIA, she specialized in security issues in Europe, the Middle East, and North Africa, and she's also a vice president of analytics at the Althea Group, a disinformation investigations and remediation firm. Finally, Cindy is the author of the newly released True or False, a CIA's analyst's guide to identifying and fighting fake news. I can highly recommend both books to our listeners. Ladies, thank you very, very much for joining me. Appreciate having you here. Thanks for the invitation. So at the start of each week, we begin with the news of the day. For this group, the news seems obvious, the one we should focus on. The FBI and the Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency warned last week that foreign malicious hackers will likely attempt to spread disinformation around election results later this year. The agencies put out a public service announcement warning that delays in final tallies caused by a larger number of mail-in ballots and other factors could fuel the disinformation effort online. So let me start with you, Nina. What are we to make of this announcement? How realistic is the threat? Well, I think 
If you look at the past four years, the U.S. government has done some, you know, taken some measures to address the threat of foreign interference. But what we see coming from the White House over the past couple of months, especially regarding the uh, safety of mail-in voting or the, you know, general safety of the election uh, is basically a disinformer's best hope uh, for the future. It's it's a fertile ground in which to sow disinformation narratives. And coupled with the fact that this issue has become so politicized, it's not hard to imagine how Russia or China or Iran might be using, for instance, President Trump's words or any of the words in the hyperpartisan media that are really sowing confusion and doubt about the electoral process. Not hard to imagine how all of that could be used against us. And so I think the threat is very, very real. So, Cindy, what do you think uh, about our best possible responses? What's your assessment? Is just this is obviously an information camp awareness campaign by the FBI and CISA. Is awareness just sufficient, or do you think that we need to take proactive measures? And if so, what? Part of the issue we have to remember is that. We are holding a presidential election during a global pandemic, and that has changed the the way in which a lot of people are voting. People are voting by mail um, in larger numbers than you know than ever, and that ends up complicating the process a little bit. Um, and so, what was needed and really hasn't been done is um, at, you know at the federal government level across all of the agencies, there needs to be a coordinated messaging campaign that explains the voting process that, you know, demystifies sort of all the myths about, um, you know, voting by mail, how reliable it is, etc. And a lot of information about how actually, you know, one should uh, use this as an option to protect themselves in this otherwise very dangerous health situation. And that hasn't happened. It's been left to, you know, a few government agencies here and there, as you mentioned, FBI um, and CISA doing a little bit of the messaging. There's been some messaging at the state level, It's but it's largely been up to state level um, election officials to inform their voters. Meanwhile, you have the administration doing a full court court press to discourage people from voting by mail to, um, as you mentioned earlier, Paul, um, to, you know, essentially message that that the election results will not be reliable because so many people will be using vote by mail and absentee voting. And so, you know, is what they're doing sufficient now? Absolutely not, because there are so many different messages coming from so many different parts of the federal and state level governments. And voters are frankly confused when what they really need is, um, you know, transparency. They need information. They need to be armed with, you know, information about how this process actually works, how it is, in fact, extremely reliable. There are very few cases of fraud that we have had in the past using vote by mail. And, um, you know, they really need to be armed with confidence that their government has this under control, that states have this under control, that their votes are secure and they're going to count. And that hasn't been the situ- situation. So so let me ask a follow up question. I, let me I guess let me ask you, Nina, uh, since since I, I, we just heard from Cindy, although Cindy, feel free to jump in. Um, the reality is, is that this is where we are right now. You know, you, you go to your election with the information space you have. 
and we have an information space in which uh, the highest levels of government are echoing disinformation about uh, the reliability of mail-in balloting. Is there anything that uh, institutions around the country can do uh, to combat that? I'm thinking, for example, of uh, uh, Senator Coates's, former DNI Coates's suggestion of a national commission. Um, is there anything that that private sector actors or private citizens can do to fight this, or is it, or is it just we're hopelessly at a loss at this point? Well, I don't think we're hopeless because if we were, I don't think I'd be able to get out of bed in the morning. Frankly, um, what I'd like to see and what I have been encouraging our uh, state and local election officials to do is to really reach out to. Uh, their constituents, their voters in a really human way. These um, public service announcements that we've been seeing are great, but really the way to reach people, the best way to reach people is going to be uh, through things like Facebook and Instagram Lives, where you have an official who's really reaching out in a human sort of way, explaining the process, explaining what their day-to-day -day responsibilities are like um, and the ways that they are personally protecting the election. I think that could have a huge impact. And really, state and local officials are trusted a bit more than those at the federal level. So I think that that is a key intervention that could happen in the next couple of weeks as we count down toward election day. But people are voting now. People are voting by mail. People are voting early. And so I think it's also incumbent on civil society organizations to be messaging about the different ways that people can vote and the ways that, uh, you know, they can make sure their ballot gets counted efficiently and uh, and safely. Um, and the social media platforms, of course, have a huge role to play. I would like to see them messaging much more strongly about the safety of mail-in voting. Uh, right now, what we're seeing are kind of little pop-ups underneath misinformation by certain individuals. Um, they, you know, they're kind of opt-in. Users can choose to ignore them. I'd prefer to create a lot more friction there. So when we're seeing that dis and misinformation, especially as it's shared by elected officials, um, to have an interstitial over that content that forces users to click through. That way, when they go into the context of reading that tweet, they have the framing already that this is not information that's to be trusted. Um, but social media platforms see, seem unwilling to make that choice uh, because it's frankly politically charged because of the extent to which elected officials are spreading voting misinformation right now. Cindy, any additional ideas? Yeah, I mean, I would just echo everything that Nina said. I think um, these civil society organizations have always played a really crucial role in elections and in informing voters about the process of voting. Um, and they're playing that same crucial role now in a, in a very, very tough uh, election environment, again, with the, the pandemic um, having changed so much of of campaigning and this election season, what they shouldn't have to be doing is is spending so much time countering so much of the the voting disinformation that is coming from elected officials themselves. And it's very unfortunate to see that because these are traditionally sort of under underfunded organizations um, that you know bootstrap together um, what they can to you know do information campaigns. So we've certainly made it tougher for them this year, but they play a crucial role. So just would echo otherwise everything that Nina said. So uh, just a quick shout out. I'm a member of a group called the National Task Force on Election Crises. And anybody who's listening who wants uh, guaranteed, solid, legal information about what 
is if voting is entailed is should go there. It's electiontaskforce.org. It's bipartisan, uh, wide ranging expertise and is a reliable source of information. Let's turn to the deeper substance of our discussion today. A, and let's take a deep dive into the ecosystem of disinformation. Buried in that ecosystem are foreign influences, domestic shills, for-profit operations, pervasive fear. Many of the internet's founders thought that connectivity would be the great source of peace and understanding. They envisioned a kumbaya world. Instead, today, social media and disinformation seem to have a significant malign impact and influence on the American public. What I've written about as an book world, book world, if you will. So let's spend a little time exploring the topic. Uh, Nina, let me start with you. Tell us a little bit about the strategic value of disinformation campaigns, who uses it, and why do they do it? Sure. So I particularly take an interest in Russian disinformation because my lens on the entire disinformation issue uh, comes from when I worked at the National Democratic Institute, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan democracy support organization funded in part by the U.S. government. And it works in places like Russia and Belarus. I, uh, in fact, got my start as a program officer working those programs. And the Russian government, the Belarusian government, did not take too kindly to our support of political parties, election monitors, and civil society activists who were organizing for a more democratic, uh, more just country. And so we were the target of a lot of disinformation. Um, And frankly, this was an early warning signal to me about the power of social media long before we were talking about uh, you know, disinformation in the U.S. political context, I was aware of how those that we worked with in Russia and Belarus were affected by the propaganda and disinformation coming from the Kremlin in particular. Um, in 2014, when the Ukraine crisis really exploded and we saw the Kremlin start to use disinformation across borders in a, in a much more um, aggravated sort of way, of course, there are many examples uh, starting in 2007 in the modern era, which I talk about in my my book, um, it was clear that this was was not something that was going to be contained to you know the the Kremlin's near abroad. Um, and I think there are a couple reasons why the Kremlin has decided to unleash disinformation uh, not only in the countries it wishes were in its area of influence, but also on us, the United States. Um, there's a domestic angle and there's also a Uh, a kind of great power competition angle. The domestic angle is that the more that the United States and other Western democracies are turned inward, are dealing with dysfunction at home, which of course the Kremlin tries to promote, uh, the more that Putin will be able to point to the United States when he has protesters on the streets of St. Petersburg or Moscow, or as was recently over the summer in Russia, Khabarovsk, the far eastern city where people have been uh, demonstrating pretty much on a weekly basis for months, he can say, are you sure you want democracy? Because it's not going so well over there. Isn't it better for us to have order as we have here in the United States? Don't you want to put your trust in me? Don't don't protest. That's silly. So it, it serves him in that domestic regard. But in terms of the great power competition, denigrating the United States is, is really useful for, for Putin. When we are 
absorbed in our own domestic dysfunction, we're going to pay less attention to what the Kremlin is doing in the international sphere, whether that's illegally annexing Crimea or supporting Assad in Syria, uh, whatever else is going on, you know, uh, escapades in the Central African Republic or support of the Venezuelan regime. We're paying a lot less attention to that because we have our own uh, our own problems here in the United States. Um, and then there's also, you know, the fact that disinformation being such a small investment has a huge return on investment. It forces Western democracies to the table with the Kremlin. And there isn't a day since since the election in 2016 or a week, frankly, that we have not spoken about the Russian threat uh, in the United States you know, Trump is considering inviting uh, inviting Putin back to the G7, even though he has not yet, you know, returned Crimea to Ukraine, which is one of the reasons that he was booted in the first place. Uh, Russia has really improved its status through this asymmetrical warfare. And I think that's one of the big goals. Um, but of course, there are domestic influences as well that echo Kremlin narratives and, and in some cases, you know, seed the narratives that the Kremlin then echoes. It's a very... Uh, mixed up ecosystem. And um, certainly, I think Cindy is really well equipped to talk about the domestic side of things as well, including or in addition to her her extensive uh, international experience. Well, let's uh, let's turn to Cindy. And you know, before we dive into the details, give our, our listeners a little bit about how disinformation works. What are some of the mechanisms by which disinformation is spread? If to know it is to is to understand it, help us understand it. So I talk about this um, in my recent book, True or False, where I chart the history um, using several different historical case studies of how disinformation and things like fake news have been used over time. Because the reality is a lot of the um, the tactics that are used today have been used throughout time. So so first, I would say disinformation, when it comes down to it, is false information that's that's used to influence, manipulate, and ultimately to change behavior. And as I said, you know, a lot of the the narratives and a lot of the the tactics that have been used throughout time really haven't changed. So when you look at disinformation narratives, there are a key, you know a couple of key similarities um, throughout history that we see today. So. What works very effectively is to um, use disinformation narratives that make strong emotional appeals. They're, they're messages that make viewers feel something when they see them. Um, so as a result, these narratives often play on you know, the emotions of fear um, or anger or anxiety. Because essentially, you know, these bad actors that are using disinformation know that when people have very strong emotional reactions to content – the sort of critical thinking skills that they might otherwise employ sort of go out the window and they're more likely to share content um, that that does make that sort of emotional trigger happen for the viewer. Um, so using those narratives, um, one of the ways that these actors use disinformation very effectively is to target particular groups and people with particular messages. And in the in the era of social media, we've made it pretty darn easy for them. Nina and I have actually written about this previously um, in Wired about um, how 
how disinformation actors target things like um, Facebook groups, closed and, and also public Facebook groups, um, because they're broken down into people who are ideologically aligned on very particular issues. It might be, you know, a group for people who feel this, you know, are part of one political party or another, or it might go all the way down to, you know, people who are really into, you know, skateboarding in Indiana, for example. I mean, that's, you know, sort of a a joke example, but, you know, it can go all the way down to very sort of niche um, interests and ways of thinking. And so essentially, these social media companies have created what is, you know, a menu to choose from of of groups that are are often very much divided by sort of ideological positions um, that are representative of the deep political divisions that we have within our country, and of course, other countries have as well. And so they have these very easy targets in which to sow their messages very effectively. Um, And the other two things that I would mention about how disinformation works is that these these narratives often contain a nugget of truth. So they're not wholesale, completely false, easy to spot messages. Often they're just, you know, misleading or taken out of context or interpreted a certain way um, because it it sort of plays to our brain's natural tendency to um, look for things that sound familiar, right? So we see these messages and we think, well, you know, that sounds pretty close to the truth. It must be true, right? Or the truth as I see it. Um, And then repetition is really key, too. And this is, again, where we see social media playing such a huge role in this piece is that with social media, you can just flood the information space with disinformation narratives. And for a social media user or somebody who's looking at their social media feed, they'll see this messages being put in front of them over and over and over again. And then as a result, it starts to sound a lot like truth. We start to think it's true because it keeps showing up in front of our faces, those are just a couple of, of ways and mechanisms that disinformation spreads. Well, you, you, you've you made it sound extremely grim, uh, Cindy. Uh, I mean, if, if it works at a psychological level, you know, educate, you know, the, I mean, I'm not a Freudian or any uh, psychologist of any sort, but you're, you're telling me it works at, at such a core gut level that, that you know, rational d- discourse doesn't counteract it very well. Is there a... Is there any way to counter malign influence without trenching on free speech or 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 is, are, are, are we just stuck with this? I have to keep hope sort of like Nina said earlier. Um, I keep hope because otherwise, you know, I wouldn't get out of bed either in the morning. Um, I do think there are ways to counter this kind of thing. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll go into this later, but um, part of it is is um, educating your population with good information consumption habits to where they don't necessarily, you know, they know that, for example, just because they see a message over and over and over again in their social media feeds doesn't actually make it true. Um, and providing people with with the tools and tactics that they need to be able to um to think critically about the kinds of narratives that they're seeing. I think that's just such a hugely important thing that the U S should be investing in. And I think it, it is reason to hope because um, there are opportunities to do that education. And um, you know, that's how you build sort of longer strategic change on this issue from my perspective is, is building a more resilient population. Okay. So we got to go back to teaching better, better in school. (laughs) Nina, um, one other aspect of this that you and Cindy have written both about is that in some ways, uh, pro- the idea of, con- of privacy, the concept of privacy isn't an unadulterated good. That kind of fascinates me. 
you've said that in many cases, you know, privacy instincts actually foster disinformation. What do you mean by that? Explain that to me. Yeah, so this goes back to exactly what Cindy was touching on before, uh, the issue of groups and the way that the social media platforms in particular have sold this idea of Facebook groups or closed and encrypted messengers as private trusted spaces on the internet where you are going to be protected from false or malign information. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. In fact, these uh, these pieces of infrastructure basically provide a ready-made attack surface for malign actors, whether foreign or domestic, because as Cindy said, we are segmented by interest and vulnerability. Um, And so what Cindy and I have suggested to the platforms, and this is a fairly arbitrary number, but I think it's a good starting point. Um, Sometimes we see closed and secret Facebook groups in particular that have tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of members. Um, And that's just crazy that, you know, one person or a couple of moderators might have that much control that they are essentially running a small media outlet under their own rules. And of course, Facebook says that they're moderating this content. They're looking at the content that's on there. Um, But there's just so much content on Facebook. They can't possibly have eyes on everything all the time. So we've suggested that starting at 5,000 members, uh, each group that is you know, trying to remain private should have some sort of human review and by default not be allowed to go private without that human review. Um, There are some groups that, of course, should remain private. In fact, after we published our our op-ed about groups in Wired, I had some people reach out to me and say, you know, I'm an abuse survivor. This is a community for me. Obviously, there are groups like that that have real privacy concerns. But for groups like the Boogaloo Boys or the Proud Boys that are using Facebook and other similar services to organize violence or to uh, to create the inauthentic spread of, of disinformation and organize that spread, um, they don't deserve that privacy. And I think that's really important. And it's something that platforms should be compelled to do. And they have been moving in that direction uh, over the past couple months. Since Cindy and I published that op-ed, there have been some really positive developments around Facebook groups, including the shutdown of several QAnon groups, several hundred, I should say, um, and the kind of changes to the group recommendations algorithm. But that's only part of the problem. And I definitely strongly believe in the value of of education and awareness building. Um, Not only do I think this is something that is important for schools to invest in here in the United States, but we need to train the voting age population as well. And my research in Central and Eastern Europe shows that this is eminently possible. Uh, Nations that have, you know, much um, less manpower and, and fewer resources than the United States does have seen positive impacts from adult training programs about media literacy, digital literacy, and civics, um, including in places like Ukraine and Estonia, which, you know, uh, their democracy is, in Estonia's case, quite strong. In Ukraine's, it's a budding democracy, but but they've invested a lot in training adults in particular. And so I think there are a few ways we can do that. We can do it through libraries. We can do it through civil society organizations. I think there's professional development opportunities here. We could start with the federal government. Uh, Nations like Poland and the Czech Republic have invested in such training programs for federal employees. But it's really important to teach people, to give them the tools they need to navigate the information flow that we're in. Because most uh, most adults, I would say from age 40 and up, aren't necessarily used to an unadulterated information flow. They grew up with and got used to a mainstream media that was 
pretty trusted and curating articles for them based on their importance, based on public interest. And that's just not the case anymore. And the same way that we've developed the reflex to not respond to a social security number scam call or to an email from a quote unquote Nigerian prince who is, you know, promising us a million dollars, we need to develop those same reflexes for the information that we encounter online. And that has to start with adults, the voting age population, because kids have grown up in this era and they know to be a bit skeptical about the information that they're encountering. Um, But adults don't necessarily have that, that reflex yet. And I'm very, very passionate and very hopeful about the ways that we can uh, instill that in the general public. Well, that at least is a little more optimistic than I was a couple <laughs> minutes ago. So, uh, so one issue to consider is, you know, who exactly the bad actors are. You know, earlier this month, FBI Director Chris Ray testified before Congress that the intelligence community had seen adverse activity by Russia to influence the election. Take a listen. Uh, The intelligence community's consensus uh, is that Russia continues to try to influence our elections, um, primarily through what we would call malign foreign influence, uh, as opposed to what we saw in 2016, where there was also an effort to target election infrastructure, you know, cyber targeting. We have not seen that second part yet this year or this cycle. So, uh, Nina, what's the ground truth? Uh, Almost immediately after this, President Trump took Chris Wray to task and asked in a tweet why Wray had not also talked about Chinese influence on our election. Mm -hmm. How much influence is Russia trying to exert and how does that compare to Chinese efforts? So what we can talk about right now is both the covert operations that we know have been taken down already by the platforms and outed by our intelligence community, as well as the overt disinformation that we see coming from propaganda outlets like RT Sputnik and CCTV, for instance. Um, And when you compare Chinese and Russian disinformation in that sense, it's pretty clear that Russia's goals uh, to sow discord on all sides of the political spectrum um, and in general in increased distrust in our democratic institutions are very different than China's goals, which kind of fit a normal propaganda uh, goal of just putting a positive spin on things going on in China, certainly supporting the Chinese response to coronavirus and denigrating Western democratic ideology. I think it's it's kind of old school in that regard. Um, and from what we've seen in the covert sphere, uh, and this with a giant caveat that I am not a China specialist and don't speak Chinese, which I think is really important for, for looking at these types of operations, but from, from what I have seen uh, and the disclosures that we know about, in the covert sphere, Russia is much more sophisticated with its tools and tactics. Um, it is able to develop narratives uh, that are, you know, disparate narratives based on the different vulnerabilities in a society. Um, and China so far has not really done that. It continues to kind of just push this pro-China narrative. And I'm thinking in particular of the takedowns that we saw around the Hong Kong protests uh, related to China, where none of this stuff really got very much engagement. It was still pretty bumbling. Um, and that's because it was very clearly pro Chinese. It wasn't really trying to get at this from an American point of view and push uh, push these narratives that might have gotten more traction in the American context. Um, now, that being said, I, I think it's also important to point out that a couple days after Director Ray's testimony, Microsoft came out with a statement 
announcement about cyber attacks that they've seen coming from Russia, China, and Iran. Uh, both Russia and China had been targeting uh, political operatives on both sides of the aisle, but actually, contrary to the uh, to the intelligence community's assessment, Microsoft also said that they had seen China uh, targeting the Biden campaign a little bit more than was previously thought. So I think they're both threats. I, I keep repeating to everyone that will listen that we don't need to uh, necessarily rank them to state that they are threats and we should be worried about both of them. And the fact that President Trump is trying to politicize this is actually doing a disservice to the American people at a very critical time um, as the election is going on. So Cindy, Nina describes a Russia that's extremely sophisticated at this point in pushing our buttons. How do we identify malign Russian influence campaigns? How can they be distinguished from, you know, uh, non-Russian uh, influence or non-Russian postings and media? So first, I, I just want to go back to sort of the first piece of this, just to say, you know, as a former CIA analyst, that it is absolutely the IC's responsibility to um, to transparently um, assess the extent of all threats of election interference um, on the foreign side. And so, you know, there has been a lot of hand wringing about, you know, the statement that the DNI put out that um, Russia, China and Iran have um, attempted to use influence to affect the results of the election. And while absolutely um, everything that Nina said about, you know, the motivations are different, their capability is different, their targets are different, all of those things are at very different levels. It is the IC's responsibility to lay out the threats as they see them. Um, and that, you know, that includes listing all of the threats, right? So not just Russia and China and Iran have taken different pieces of this. They might be doing it in different ways and for different reasons, but they have, you know, attempted to interfere in the election in some way, shape or form. Um, so that being said, you know, it's extremely difficult to do attribution in this kind of work in general. Um, so specifically finding Russian assets and assessing that they are coming from Russia. That's an extremely different, difficult job to do. Um, there are some things that we know about um, the way that they carry out these operations and the kinds of tools and tactics that they employ, um, because they've been doing this for a long time. Um, even as the, so the Soviet Union, they employed a lot of these tactics, um, you know, before the internet came on board, and now they've got the internet at their disposal and social media at their disposal. So one of their tactics is um, to use surrogates in, you know, in uh, modern day cases, this would be things like um, websites that uh, repeat sort of Kremlin talking points that we know are connected to the Kremlin um, to push out disinformation narratives in not just English language, but for other foreign languages as well. They also have um, a strategy of sort of in this same vein, information laundering. So much like the Soviet Union did, where it would push false information into, um, for example, media in developing countries, and then hope that uh, that information would spread to more legitimate press and then more legitimate press and then eventually make it into, you know, mainstream, uh, legitimate English language press coming to Americans themselves, that sort of process is still very much um, happening, as we've seen in recent weeks of various um, operations becoming public where, um, the Kremlin or Kremlin-linked entities have tried to, um, you know, have created fake journalists and things like that to push pieces into various online uh, news outlets and things like that. 
And then, you know, the other strategy, we've talked a lot lot about this sort of already, so I won't spend too much time on it. But the other strategy is really just to amplify U.S. divisions. Um, And they have a very easy task (laughs) on that front because so much of disinformation narratives um, are coming from Americans themselves. And so, you know, having learned a lot in 2016 and, and 2015 when they were starting these operations for the 2016 election, you know, they've learned since then that um, they're sort of sitting, you know, a little bit on the sides and simply sort of amplifying content that is already created by Americans themselves, uh, rather than generating content themselves from scratch that might have things like, you know, English language, you know, grammar problems, um, or sort of other obvious signs of it being a Russian effort. It's just very easy, very cost effective, and they get a lot of bang for their buck by just creating things like accounts or websites that simply amplify, you know, even going as far as copying and pasting and sharing memes that are already created by Americans themselves. So, so let's go there, you know, and, and transition from foreign influence to the problem of American discourse. Last month, the Washington Post reported that a Trump youth group was paying some of his supporters to essentially operate their Twitter and Facebook accounts as the equivalent of a, of a troll farm to spout Trumpian messages. The pro, the platforms, Twitter and 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 Facebook deleted a number of accounts to end the practice. But really, that raises a lot of questions for me. You know, uh, Cindy, you, you were just saying that American disinformation is, is as much of, if not a bigger threat than foreign influence. Is this an example of what you mean? Yeah, absolutely. So if you look at it just in terms of, you know, the raw numbers of things, when you look at um, the extent to which you know, false content and messages are on social media uh, every day, the vast majority of of that false content is coming from Americans themselves. And in this particular case, this is um, a right wing youth group um, run by Turning Point USA. They, as you said, hired these teenagers, they paid them to, um, to post uh, messages on Twitter and Facebook that were scripted. Um, much like we've seen in, in, in other countries, political campaigns that have done the same thing, hired individuals to post scripted messages that are coordinated on a daily basis. Um, we've seen this now happen in the United States as well. Um, and, you know, it wasn't a terribly sophisticated effort. Um, you could go on to Twitter and I, you know, I looked at uh, a lot of these um, tweets and posts. You could go on to these platforms, uh, search for the exact text and find all of the accounts that were posting this as well. Um, and these were American teenagers. Nina? Yeah, how common is this? Is it for disinformation to be domestic as opposed to foreign? Uh, which is more prevalent and common? American disinformation at this point is certainly more common. This has been normalized by uh, elected officials who are using it on a daily basis, using the very same tactics that Russian disinformers use. And frankly, this is probably the the starkest lesson from my book from places like Poland and the Republic of Georgia, neither of which have politicized Russian disinformation to the same extent the United States has. They're both very clear about the threat that it poses. Even there, when their ruling parties are using domestic disinformation, that Russian disinformation counteraction policy is completely undercut by the fact that domestic disinformation is so prevalent. Um, so this is a really huge issue. And I'd just add to Cindy's great explanation of the turning point action uh, kerfuffle that 
you know, this is very similar to action that we've seen the Kremlin use. I'm not suggesting, just to be clear, that this is an idea that that uh, Turning Point got from the Kremlin, but um, both in Estonia and in Georgia in 2007 and 2008, Kremlin youth group Nashi uh, was involved in DDoS, uh, distributed denial of service attacks, as well as website defacements and kind of the beta era of disinformation before social media was ubiquitous in these countries. Um, and we've seen in in both cases uh, the use of Im- use of impressionable young people, and in 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 the American case, of course, the compensation of of minors um, to spread what looks like authentic grassroots discourse, but is actually just astroturfing. It, it is made to look that way, but isn't really that authentic uh, discourse. And I've seen other political candidates use this as well. Um, in the midterms in 2018, I did a story for BuzzFeed News about a Massachusetts Senate campaign that was uh, running against Elizabeth Warren that used a bunch of sock puppet accounts. Um, and again, targeted groups, which we were talking about before in order to give the guys of grassroots support for this candidate. I mean, it is absolutely extremely prevalent. And this is why we've seen the social media platforms turn more to behavioral uh policies about coordinated and authentic behavior and tactics, rather than looking at content and doing content moderation in order to push back on disinformation. Because when you're spamming someone, when you're astroturfing, when you are um, giving an inauthentic impression of who you really are and your real opinions, that goes against any of the platform's terms of service. And it it really isn't a speech issue at that point, because these are private platforms and they can set their, their own terms uh, for use of those platforms. And frankly, all of these these coordinated campaigns um, go against those terms of service. So l- let me let me push back on that a bit. I mean, if only for 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 the sake of argument, um, you you use coordinated and inauthentic. So the inauthenticness here is 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 in the people being paid. If they weren't being paid, and this was truly the result of them being motivated by their love of Trump or their love of of. Uh, of Biden, if it were a comparable thing, to to post what the Trump campaign asked them to, that wouldn't be inauthentic. It's the mm-hmm. paying that makes them inauthentic. And as to coordinated, isn't that the hallmark of political action, right? The protests in the streets today are coordinated. Uh, uh, the, the, the essence of a political campaign is to coordinate 65 million voters to vote for you. So, you know, how does, how does, our concern about coordinated, inauthentic uh, campaigns run up against our First Amendment solicitude for authentic, coordinated political action. Where's the line and how do we draw that? Um, I didn't say who should answer, so whoever wants to go. Uh, So I think the difference here with, with this specific example is the fact that uh, turning point action was providing scripts and again paying the the individuals who are involved in the campaign. Um, in many cases, they were using accounts created for that express purpose. Um, sometimes they were using their personal accounts, but there was a, a you know a, a script. Um, that they were copying and pasting, and that it meets the definition of, of spamming and coordinated inauthentic behavior. You're absolutely right that we do run up against, you know, uh, the the worry that coordination could be used um, in 
in a way to crack down on on legitimate speech. But what we're talking about here isn't, you know, a solicitation from a candidate saying like, if you support my campaign, please share this post or please, um, you know, uh, please post a message in support. Um, instead, there there is an exchange of money. Again, minors are involved and it is the exact same script being posted over and over uh, in response to a solicitation from from a political action group, and I think that is is what the problem is. And again, um, the same tactics have been used uh, by by malign actors abroad as well. So let me make it a little more pointed and turn to you, Cindy. If this were a bunch of adults doing it for free, but posting the identical text at the request of the Trump or Biden campaign, would that be disinformation? Or would that just be successful, coordinated political action? So from my perspective, and this is sort of a soapbox issue for me, this is a topic I'm really passionate about, about the extent to which modern day political campaigning, particularly across democracies, has evolved in a way that is starting to look in some cases like disinformation-like tactics. And I think that there needs to be a much larger conversation about guardrails that we need to put into place um, on this issue. Otherwise, campaigns will increasingly go to whatever it takes to get the vote. Um, I think a good example here is actually um, the India, uh, the national election in India in 2019, in which political parties, including the ruling BJP party, hired individuals to create um, what were called IT cells to post coordinated content on a daily basis. And where where it crossed the red line for me is because this can look like just good digital organizing, right? You're getting volunteers or in some cases you're paying um, staffers, for example, to post positive messaging. Where it went hugely wrong and where I think the danger is, is that these were used to post um, oftentimes, you know, things like edited videos, manipulated photos, false narratives, false claims of events that didn't actually happen, um, and that sort of thing that encouraged things like violence and real world harm and not just vote a certain way, but the sort of more dangerous territory as well. Um, and that's where where I am starting to get concerned about what we're seeing campaigns do in the United States. Um and particularly with this with this particular case, you know, if you were talking about this in another country, seeing this happen in another country where these teenagers were hired to post scripted content, oftentimes a lot of it was false. We would call that a, I mean, in the disinformation world, we would we would call that most likely a troll farm, right? It was a paid troll farm. Um, so I think we do need to have this this larger conversation because it's also an issue for social media platforms when it's a domestic individual pushing this content and they're paid to do it. Um, can they just, you know, if they are ideologically aligned with the content that they're pushing, they can claim political belief. It's a personal opinion. It's a, it's a personal po- political belief. So it puts the social media platforms in a really tough position of being the ones to, to arbitrate this. And as a result, as Nina said, they focus then on behaviors. So accounts that are, um, you know, fake profiles that are pushing this content, paid operations and that sort of thing. Well, this has been fascinating, and and we could probably go on for hours, but uh, we try to limit how long we go so that our listeners don't drop us. So let me let me close our discussion with by asking you guys to look into your crystal ball, and and I'm going to just give throw you a little curveball and just ask you simply on a scale of zero to ten, how much of a threat to the integrity of the next election is Russian disinformation, and on a scale of zero to ten. 
How much of a threat is American disinformation to the integrity of the next election? Uh, Nina, you can go first. I will give Russian disinformation a six or a seven. Uh, I think it is a persistent threat. I think our government is not organized to counter it properly right now. And the social media platforms certainly don't have the incentives to address it. But as much as all of that is true for Russian disinformation, as someone who over the past week has been trolled by a number of fringe media personalities relentlessly, uh, absolutely I think American disinformation is a far greater threat and already is affecting the integrity of the election. I would give that a 10 out of 10. Cindy? Yeah, well, former CIA analyst doesn't like to uh, (laughs) agree to numbers. So this exercise is a bit tough for me. Um, I would say the Russian um, threat of influence, I would rank around a five or a six and American disinformation absolutely at a 10. Wow. So... I mean, do you think it's going to ruin the election, this disinformation? I mean, it depends on how you define ruin, right? Um, Existential. You know. We won't know who the real real winner is, right? I mean, I think it's going to be a process. I think the, the bigger threat is on people's perceptions of the election results. Absolutely. That's the concern. Will it, you know, will it change votes? You know, I can't say that impact is very hard to measure. Um, will it, you know, do some sort of other damage? I mean, that's tough. But it's the perception. That's the risk um, of how, how confident people feel in the election results, how confident they feel in whether the election was, you know, tampered with, how they feel about whether their vote actually counted. And then the long term threats of that to people then as a result disengage from the voting process because they feel like it's all rigged or, you know, is outside of their control. Elections so often as 2016. Uh, did come down to, uh, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes thousands of votes in particular areas. So, you know, (laughs) the risk is high, I think. Yeah. Well, thank you both. So we always try and end this podcast with a little bit of good news to make the week better. Today, I think the good news is still a little grim, but we want to call out our victories, however small they are. As listeners surely know, President Trump has at least twice in the past week refused to commit to the peaceful transfer of power after the election. The good news, such as it is, is that a number of Republican leaders have publicly rejected the president's dangerous and unconstitutional rhetoric. Senators McConnell, Rubio, Sass, and Romney have all spoken out against the president, something they don't always do. The Senate passed a unanimous resolution reaffirming its commitment to a peaceful transition. While we might have wanted them to speak more forcefully, in the current environment, the mere fact that they speak at all is this week's good news. And so that's a wrap for our show. Thanks for joining us. We'll be releasing a new show every Monday. This episode and all future episodes are available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else that you download podcasts. We hope you'll subscribe. We will also archive this podcast at cnb.org if you want to find them on our website. And if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. The email is podcast at checks-and-balances.org. That's, that's hyphens between the words. Thank you again to Nina Jankowitz and Cindy Otis for joining us on today's podcast. I'm Paul Rosenzweig, your host. Today, I end by offering you a definition of the rule of law from the Oxford English Dictionary. Quote, the authority and influence of law and society, especially when viewed as a constraint on individual or institutional behavior. Hence the principle whereby all members of society, including those in government, are considered equally subject 
to publicly disclose legal codes and processes. I couldn't have said it better myself. Thanks for joining us.